You're listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Many jails and prisons across the country have now become coronavirus hotspots. For example, news reports about the infamous Rikers Island Jail in New York estimate that 1,200 inmates are infected and 10 have died. In addition, an estimated 800 correctional officers have been infected, and of those, 8 have passed. Also, there are estimates that over 560 prisoners in federal custody have tested positive and 24 have died. Obviously, social distancing in jail is pretty much impossible. Therefore, across the country, large numbers of inmates are being released in order to reduce the risk of spreading the virus. Of course, there are also risks to releasing inmates. One prisoner released in Northern California was rearrested for carjacking. A second was rearrested for arson. His rearrest came within hours of being first let out of jail. What effect has releasing so many inmates had on jails and on the courts? What effect has it had on the community? I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Our focus continues to be on how courts are coping with the coronavirus crisis. Today we have joining with us Zanelle Brown, court administrator in Wayne County, Michigan, home to the city of Detroit. Mike Rowdy, court executive officer in San Diego, California. Mark Weinberg, court administrator in Volusia County, Florida, encompassing the cities of Deland, Deltona, and Daytona Beach. Angie Vinskoik, Court Administrator with the Municipal Court in Breckenridge, Colorado. Liz Rambo, Trial Court Administrator in Lane County, Oregon, home to the city of Eugene. And Rick Pierce with the Pennsylvania Administrative Office of the Courts. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for joining today's podcast. Let me start by asking, has your jail reduced the inmate population since the start of the coronavirus crisis? And how much of a reduction has there been? Zanel? How about the jails in Wayne County? So our county jail had about 1,400 people when we first started, and now we're down to over a little over 800 or so. So there's been a drastic reduction there. Mark, what's the situation in Volusia County? The uh, county jail population here in Volusia County, which is the county that Daytona Beach is located in, started out with a population uh, approaching 1,500. Uh, right now, it's down to about 1,200. The other counties in our jurisdiction have smaller populations, but have seen, from a percentage standpoint, uh, a similar reduction. Mike, what sort of a reduction in inmate population has there been in San Diego? We uh, have about 5,000 people in local detention facilities. We've reduced that by about 1,500 and are taking additional steps as early as possible through pre-arraignment reviews and other things to try and keep that number down. How involved was the court in deciding who would be released? Was there an agreed-upon criteria? Zanel? So our court has a unique um, situation. We have a a court order that's in place regarding the jails and managing jail population. And I think that's been around 
since 1970-something. And so our chief judge was very involved. He reached out to the prosecutor. He reached out to the sheriff. And on the phone call, you had representation from the defense bar and also the medical staff at the jail. The starting point was first to look at those who had misdemeanors and did not pose a threat to the community and the prosecutor and the defense bar came to some agreements around that. Then they began to look at those who had underlying conditions where being in jail was a threat, whereas releasing them to appear on a personal bond was more suitable for the offense they had committed. And then they go through that list and each day they were working away based upon what the medical people were saying and looking at the conditions of the jail and seeing how fast the virus was spreading. So that's how we got down to the 800. But it was a lot of day-to-day conversations between all of those parties. Rick, what happened with the courts and the jails in Pennsylvania? Pete, I'll echo what Zanel said, and I'll, but I'll start with saying the release of the, the county incarcerated individuals was done on a need-only basis based upon the risk of COVID-19 in that geographic region, as we have had hot spots in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and in some parts of the Commonwealth, not so much. So that's taken on an individual county level. At the state level, though, the governor issued a reprieve order designed to release nonviolent incarcerated individuals who are vulnerable to this coronavirus disease. These inmates would have been within 12 months of their home confinement or community corrections uh, center release date, or they could be within nine months from reaching the minimum date of their sentence. And these would be for nonviolent offenders. The governor's order spelled out those who would be exempt from the early release as well. Additionally, Department of Corrections sought input from the committing court, specifically from the sentencing jurist and the district attorney, determining whether or not an individual was eligible for early release. Was there any discussion over the definition of a violent defendant versus a nonviolent one? It's very possible they did have a discussion. I don't know to what extent what specific criteria was used for. I do know that, and I'll talk about that a little later on, some of the criteria and how that was the number was chiseled down from as many as uh, 900 to as few as 80 individuals who were released. But I can say that they took a look at those individuals, focusing primarily on those individuals who are vulnerable and at risk for the disease and those that have the underlying medical conditions that we have always heard from the CDC and other sources. So those folks, and in particular, when you're talking about the nonviolent, one exemption I can say is like burglaries. Uh, they would be exempted, so they would not be eligible for early release. And that was noted very early on. They still want judges' input, but at this time, they've put a hold on those folks. Uh, some of the other the sexually violent ones, there are a list of criteria, I think, would probably help define what the nonviolent and violent differentiation is. Uh, just in the interest of time, I, I didn't spell that out because I think there's like 12 or 15 different steps or different criteria that's listed by the governor in working with corrections in the courts. Mike? Much like the other jurisdictions, we had our judicial administrative team, presiding judge, supervising criminal judges, working with the district attorney, the public defender, the sheriff. Here in California, the chief justice and the judicial council issued a no bail, zero dollar bail order that listed nonviolent offenders who would be eligible for release with no bail. And that was implemented at the local level. So you had a number of folks that were released from that mechanism. In addition, we locally had teams of uh, district attorneys and public defenders working together pre-trial to make release stipulations, which were then brought to court. 
So it was a very active, local, collaborative involvement to bring all the players to the table to see who we could most safely release. Liz, how about Lane County, Oregon? Here in Eugene, Oregon, in Lane County, we have a rather unique situation because we already have a very vigorous pretrial release program with release officers who have delegated a release decision-making authority from our judges. And they operate on a set of locally agreed-upon criteria to release people from the jail that involves every kind of release from release on own recognizance all the way up to conditional release. But we don't do a lot of security release. So when this situation happened, we were situated to have our release officers go back through and look at any of the in-custody population that they had not released based on risk to the community and work with the jail to determine if release was appropriate based on that person's situation, um, whether they were at risk. And it's worked very well. We have reduced the pretrial population at the jail somewhat, but not significantly. We were already not holding um, nonviolent misdemeanors and those types of cases. So we've taken the jail population down by about 70 out of 360. So it hasn't been a gigantic number here in Lane County. Mark? I, I think it's important to denote the difference between jails and prisons at this point. And from our standpoint, the definition of a jail and those who are housed in jail include mostly pretrial detainees, as well as individuals who are serving a, an incarcerative sentence of less than a year. Any, anybody serving a sentence longer than a year is normally serving that sentence in a state prison. As it relates to jail, uh, others have said we have a pretty robust pretrial release system already in place, but there was a, an initial movement to take another look at individuals who were in that pretrial status. And that's an ongoing thing. After the initial push was done, it really is a daily occurrence where we have judges who are taking a look at everyone who's currently in a pretrial status in the jail and taking a second look along with input from the prosecutors and the defense bar to see if that person can be released. A little different on the sentence portion in that it was the prosecutors came up with a list of individuals who were within a certain number of days of having fulfilled their sentence anyway. And with the input of the defense bar and the court, a decision was made that certain individuals could be released early, if you will. That population of people is not being addressed so far because, frankly, there aren't that many people newly sentenced since the onset of the pandemic. Walk me through the process of assigning return court dates to such a large number of inmates. Zanel? Well, first, the prosecutor and the defense sort of agreed to, you know, what would be the return date. And we had some people who were not necessarily pretrial, but were serving time. And like our weekend people who check in just to be incarcerated on the weekend, some of those we were just like, okay, is it necessary to even continue that type of thing? Or is it okay to say that they, they get credited for the time that they've done in their release? Some people were released but put on a tether. So that could mean that they could stay out possibly even longer as far as the court date because they have that additional monitoring there. 
So it depends on why you were released, what was your medical condition, what was the resources to determine what would be the appropriate return date. And again, a lot of conversations were had about that. When you refer to tether, uh, you mean an ankle monitor? The ankle monitor, right, the GPS ankle monitor. Mike? Like the other jurisdictions, we have a variety of release dates, but we've pushed as many people as possible out into the uh, July and August timeframe. We figure by then we might be in a position to reopen more fully, and that gives us sufficient time. Like the other jurisdictions where folks were kind of at the end of their sentences, we considered it credit for time served and moved on. So at this point, we've pushed them out 60 to 90 days or more to give us sufficient time to recover. Liz? We're doing very similar to what Mike was talking about in just rolling dates out into the future. We have regularly scheduled out-of-custody proceedings, and um, managing those has become quite a challenge as we're not currently conducting them. So our earliest dates are in June, and then rolling dates out after that. Once a date for a certain proceeding is full, we move out to the next date. So we haven't been managing the return dates based on risk. We've been managing them based on our capacity to hear them. Mark? Being uncertain as to a date for us to fully reopen, we we haven't been given return dates to folks. Uh, We just make sure we have uh, up-to-date contact information for everyone who has been released and have pretty much been advising them that they'll be hearing from the court as when their next court date will be. How are judges, attorneys, interpreters, and court staff protecting themselves while conducting those mandatory in-custody hearings? Rick? Pete, everyone's participating remotely. In some cases, particularly in our common pleas or general jurisdiction courts, the judges may be connecting from their courtroom a video conferencing units, but everyone else will be participating in another location, and that includes the interpreters and court reporters, as well as the attorneys. Zanel? Well, we just got released from our governor Friday, a new executive order that requires that everyone wears the protective mask when they're in public places that are enclosed. And for our courthouse, the inmates are not coming in right now. They're they're participating remotely. Counsel's participating remotely. But we do have the judges and the courtroom clerk there. And in some cases, we still have a court reporter there. So that'll help, and we'll see how it works. Are they in the courtroom, or are they participating remotely from their offices inside the courthouse? The court clerk and the court reporter and the judge are still in the courtroom. They're distanced, but they're still in the actual courtroom. Liz? We're doing exactly what Zanel just described with the judge and the courtroom clerk in the courtroom. That is to make the record. And then the hearings are entirely remote. The DA and the defense attorney appear from their offices and the inmate from the jail all separately. We did have to devise a waiver and notification so that inmates could waive having counsel in person with them knowingly. And that was to make sure that their rights were protected Because in a remote proceeding, you have to find ways for the attorney to have a private conversation with their client during the proceeding. And we were able to do that, but we wanted to make sure that everybody 
was aware of what that would entail before they agreed to participate in a remote proceeding. Has there been any concern about those left in jail getting infected? Has there been any concern from the community about those who were released? Mark? Really reluctant to mention this because out of fear of jinxing it, but there's an article in the local paper over the weekend that there have been no infections in the Volusia County Jail up to this point. I have to give them a lot of credit for the preparations that they uh, undertook leading up to this to help prevent that from occurring. As far as concern expressed, there were some uh, articles reporting on the release of individuals when that activity initially took place. But I think the, the reporters all did a really good job of explaining this sort of thing happens in the normal course anyway, normally. It's just that it happened uh, to a greater extent due to the due to the pandemic. So to the extent the court played a role in that, we did help explain that process. Mike? Uh, has there been concern expressed about those in jail being infected? Yes, much like we've heard across uh, California and across the country. Is there concern about those who've been released? Again, yes, from community members who are concerned about the types of criminals, the nature of the defendants we're releasing. And did we have any role in allaying those fears? No, we did not. We basically deferred those issues to our justice partners to have them explain the process and the safeguards that we've attempted to put in place to make sure that we release only those which we have some level of comfort in releasing and or who were released pursuant to the zero bail guidelines issued by the State Judicial Council. I also want to ask about defendants owing money on time payments. Now, some say we're facing the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Has your court made more lenient arrangements for time payments? Are they forgiving debts? Angie? We've always allowed extensions for payments. Uh, It's one thing that the judge, he would rather give people more time than penalize them for not being able to pay. And one of the things that we also don't do, we don't charge extra for them having their payments deferred for a while. So I know there's other courts in Colorado at the municipal level that add extra uh, fees on for allowing for payment plans or for deferments of payments. Um, But we don't do that. And as long as defendants stay in touch with us, we will do the extensions. It's just when they come to the point where we haven't heard from them in a really long time and try to get them back into touch with the court um, that we'll end up sending them to collections. But that's kind of like a very last step for us. Liz? Courts in Oregon have taken a couple of steps to decrease the burden for those, especially on time payment schedules. For example, we have set aside our payment schedule assessment fee. It was a small fee that was applied to payment schedules. And we've also set aside the program of license sanctions for failure to comply with payment We have deferred the sending of delinquency notices, and we've also deferred collections fees. So in Oregon, when you were referred to third-party collections, there were some fees attached to that, and those have been suspended on judgments that are due at this point. Angie, are the Breckenridge police issuing fewer traffic citations? Is the town worried about the loss of revenue? 
there haven't been as many people in town. Uh, so I think the only tickets that they've been issuing have been the 20 or more uh, miles per hour over the speed limit. And uh, I haven't seen any within the past couple weeks for any of the traffic. I think most of the stops have ended up being uh, within the county instead of within town. I don't think they're yet uh, worried about the loss of revenue. Um, it was one of those things where traffic tends to not be a high revenue generating ticket for us in the first place. So it's more of just trying to figure out what the new norm is going to be. And I know all the departments within town were asked to come up with uh, budget cuts and such to kind of help for the next year. So there's you know, hiring freezes and merit increases have been cut for the foreseeable future uh, right now. So I think that's kind of where they're looking to cut costs at, at this point in time and not concern themselves about making revenue through citations. Are other courts cutting back on issuing warrants and license suspensions for non-payment? Mark? Well, the short answer is we, we are cutting back on that. And that is those sorts of issues don't fall under the definition of what we consider to be mission critical. So those proceedings have not been conducted up to this point. So the court has not been issuing warrants for non-payment. Rick? I will echo what, what Mark just said, that, uh, that we don't consider that mission critical function. But more importantly, the Supreme Court, when they issued their uh, order of closing the courts, they addressed this particular issue in our magisterial district courts and said that they would accept payments only via the mail or through our e-pay system, which is an electronic payment system, but nothing in-person payment. For any missed payment or default is not going to result in the issue of an arrest warrant. Now, what they may do is they may schedule a hearing for the purpose of after the courts are open back up to the public for the purposes of going discussing a payment plan, but there would be no arrest warrants issued for non-payment. And finally, our usual wrap-up question, what's been the biggest issue this week you've had to manage involving the crisis? Sunel? We're doing deep cleaning in another one of our buildings this week, so handling that, making sure the notices go out. We probably have to close the court there for a day. So handling all the logistics and the communications is probably the biggest thing. Rick? Yeah, I would say in addition to what Sunel just said, looking more of a broad perspective, I'd say the reconstitution issues. We're not ready to open the doors to the public in all of our courthouses, yet how we work with the county executive to properly and safely conduct our court operations in this public setting in the near future is still uncertain. Coops do include a generic template for reconstitution. The intent is to be universal among all of our courts that are of general limited jurisdiction. But that does put limits on the specificity and the uniqueness of the circumstances that we face collectively as courts, as well as individually as an individual court. So as the saying goes, I think the devil's in the details, which is critical to continue to ask those appropriate questions and then seek the applicable responses. So that's probably what we're at right now. And I would say that's the biggest issue that we've gone through over the past week and continue to do in the next week or two. Angie? I think the biggest thing for me this last week was 
uh, just trying to figure out, like I had mentioned previously, about getting back to the normal and how the dockets are going to work and how we're going to have in-person defendants. It was decided that we would start to have court again in June. So I'm working with the judge and the prosecutor and our security as to how we're going to have that happen. And it's a lot more complicated than I anticipated and kind of hard to, to know how we're going to have that work when we don't know how many people will actually be showing up. Mike? Much like everyone else, how do we begin to reopen and restore services? We've gone through and are analyzing now a recent employee survey to try to assess the level and potential personnel resources that we would have available, assuming some level of continued closures or school closures, those kinds of things. But our focus is really turning to how we can reduce or eliminate person-to-person transactions, the greater deployment of technology and online services, how we operate in an era of social distancing and limitations on the number of people in our courthouses. How do we continue to conduct hearings beyond the basic criminal cases that we're now doing into all the other case types. So a lot more discussion and focus about what does a reopen or a restoration look like. Liz? We've been working, I think Mike said it best, on resume operations planning. And, he, you know, and all those things he talked about and the issues about reopening with social distancing and the, the various types of hearings and how can you conduct them with people in person while reducing the number of people in the courthouse are all things that we were working on. But at the end of last week, the new emerging issue is budget. We in Oregon may be facing pretty steep statewide budget reduction. And so the emerging issue adding complexity to how we restore operations is that our budget may be significantly impaired going into the second year of this fiscal cycle. So that is the newest. Mark? I have to echo what others have said, but just on on top of that mentioned, you know, as people have become more familiar with the technological resources that we have, trying to manage expectations related to the kinds of proceedings that are appropriate for use of the by technology and still operating within the essential services umbrella that we're, we're still operating under. Once again, I want to thank Angie, Mike, Liz, Mark, Zanel, and Rick today for sharing how their courts are coping with the many aspects of the coronavirus crisis. Reductions in inmate populations and reductions in fine and fee payments are just two aspects of this ongoing emergency. And again, I want to thank you court professionals out there listening and who every day keep the courts operating. You have our deepest thanks. Join us next Thursday, May 7th, as we continue our conversation with our guests. Remember, if you have a question about how the courts are coping with the coronavirus, email us at podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. We'll try to answer your question on a future episode. This has been the Court Leader Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. 
Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.